the Splitting Headache podcast in association with Valamus Law. Expert advice on how to divorce well with Nick Koffer and Joanna Abrahams. Welcome to the first episode of the Splitting Headache podcast with me, Nick Koffer, and family lawyer Joanna Abrahams. Hello. Joanna has been a family lawyer for well over 20 years and is a partner and director at Valamus Law in London. If you found this podcast, it's likely because your marriage or indeed your relationship is among the very high percentage of marriages and relationships which has either reached its end or you're seriously considering divorce or separation and divorce separation call it what you want is without a doubt a minefield there can be children involved finances there's all all manner of loss and change and guilt and anger and you'll run the gauntlet of lots of pretty unimaginable feelings in what may well be the biggest test of your life but how can you separate well and in particular how can you separate well for your children they're the most precious thing you've got they didn't choose for you to break up so how can you protect them in this grueling process and enable everyone to move on and and just live their lives so coming up in this series we'll explore everything from contact arrangements financial settlements we'll look at the impact of hostility on children how can mediation help and what happens if your only route left is to make an application to the family court. Coming up on this episode, we're looking at one of the most complex and sadly increasingly common aspects of divorce, parental alienation, a subject which you, Joanna, specialise in, you're very passionate about. In a nutshell, what is parental alienation? Oh, in a nutshell, that's quite difficult. But um, to try and sum it up, it's where one child or both children become so strongly aligned with one parent so as to reject the other wholly but not only that parent, but often that parent's family as well. So in effect, they lose half of their identity. Is some form of alienation not automatic in a relationship breakup, in a divorce, in a separation? Isn't it going to happen by definition, some form of alignment? I'm not sure I agree with that. There's no reason for there to be alignment if the children have been put in a position whereby they know too much about the breakdown of a relationship and certainly they'll start forming their own views and may take on board the views of their resident parent. But if they are protected as they should be and given a proper narrative, such as uh, mummy and daddy still love you, but we don't want to live together anymore, but that's not going to change things apart from X, Y and Z, and they are given a clear explanation, then that is going to help enormously. But children tend to take their cues from adults. That's not to say they don't make their own decisions. Of course they do, but also those decisions can be guided by their adults, such as, for example, if a child wants to go out at 11.30 at night and go running uh, with the the gangs and and drinking and smoking, most adults are going to say, no, that's not going to happen. So they may want to make decisions, but they also need boundaries. And this is also a time, I think, when children's boundaries may not be in place as robustly as they usually are uh, because the parent doesn't want to upset the child. And this in itself can cause problems. And you've already given there one of the ways in which we can limit the risk of parental alienation by by presenting the separation in a positive way. I wonder, though, whether there's a fine line between a child expressing difficult feelings, perhaps acting out these feelings as well, uh, in a way which could actually distance them from one of their parents and actual parental alienation. Where is that line? It's a very difficult one and often psychologists are brought in specifically to address that issue. And as a solicitor, I have to be careful not to go beyond my remit. But my experience tells me that it is a fine line and it can be different for different children within the same family. And one normally looks at their expressed wishes and then you look to see whether those are actually their ascertainable wishes. So what they're asking for may not actually be what they want which sounds a bit bizarre, 
But you could have a case where a child feels rejected because a parent has a new partner or their new partner has a child and they feel second best and they don't want to see that father or their mother or, or whatever. But actually what, what it comes down to is they feel they've been replaced and sometimes that is happening and a child doesn't have the emotional intelligence to be able to explain that. And But they know that they're hurting and often when a child is hurting, their first reaction is to lash out. It's only as we get older that we learn to regulate our feelings more. So you say there's this element of a child actually expressing something and not really wanting that. Have you also got the element of, the, of them expressing something which is not their own true feelings, not their own true opinions? Is that one of the early indicators of alienation? Well, the problem is that it will come across as their own true feelings. I don't want this. I want that. The issue is whether they're then parroting their resident parent using the same rhetoric, the same um, wording and the mannerisms are the same. And then one can often see that there is that direct alignment where they're so enmeshed that they're unable to distinguish their own thoughts and feelings from their, that of their parent. So that's not to say they're not feeling it. They may well be saying, I hate you, mum. I hate you, dad. You have done X, Y, and Z. You were abusive to me. You never did this or you never did that. And they actually believe it. Children can believe events which have not happened. This has happened in my experience where they have recalled events which simply could not have happened. And yet their own narrative is it did because they come to believe it. And this is something which needs a lot of unpicking and it needs unpicking by specialists. Is that in effect part of the big problem here is that this isn't a case of children sort of just randomly developing thoughts against a parent. These are actually deep feelings which they very much believe to be true. If, for example, they have been manipulated by the alienating parent, they're going to really believe what they're thinking, aren't they? If they have been manipulated, yes. But we also need to bear in mind something which is quite controversial, namely that parental alienation is not an umbrella term for every time a child doesn't want to be with a parent. There may well be very salient reasons why that child and doesn't want to be reasons. there. There could be safeguarding reasons, but there could be genuine. We cannot always say the child is saying this because dad is saying that because mum is saying that. Sometimes they are very genuine reasons and we have to be very, very careful not to bandy the term parental alienation around. Sometimes a child is not being listened to and is neglected and them saying that does not mean that it, it, it's something that their, parent, their resident parent is saying. We have to be very, very careful, which is why I bring you back to what I said originally, which is we can present a case, but uh, an independent social worker or a social worker from the court, from CAFCAS, or a psychologist or a psychotherapist, they will have the trained skills to dig a little deeper and try to ascertain what's going on. And I think on the back of that, it's also important to say that there's a lot of literature online that claims that parental alienation doesn't exist, that, it, that it's not even a thing. Well, what do you say to that? Well, the World Health Organization would disagree with that. There's an actual definition of parental alienation and it being classified as abuse. So that's probably a simple answer to it. Uh, but one has to be careful because it is used to muddy the waters. And sometimes it is not parental alienation and uh, uh, and either parent can shout it loud from, from the rooftops. And so one has to be very careful. It's a term that has to be, in my view, found by a court. One can allege it and one has to be careful about alleging it. It's something which only after careful consideration, careful reports, and then a judge hearing evidence and making a decision, taking into account the evidence, whether or not it is PA. It's not for us to say it is, which is probably quite controversial. But we need to be very mindful of the fact that it is a decision which a judge has to take 
with all the evidence before him or her. And that evidence can take the form of a report by CAFCAS, um, a Section 7 report where they will have investigated uh, both parents, the cho- the children, uh, the, inter- the interactions, the relationships, and that will be part of the process, won't it? A small part of the process. No CAFCAS officer is going to say there is parental alienation. It is unusual. A CAFCAS officer will, well, they're called family court advisors now, FCAs, what used to be called CAFCAS officers. And just to explain, they are part of the social work network of the court. So they are social workers appointed by the court to carry out reports independent of the court of the both parties of their own own organisation. And um, what they will do is they are trained to look for areas of concern, warnings, triggers that they will highlight. And they may say, we're concerned to know that X, Y and Z. And, but as to how this goes forward, that's a matter for the court. It's not for CAFCAS to say, we think this is PA. They can only give recommendations. So you mentioned earlier on that there's this notion of of extreme alignment as being one of the indicators. You've got a child who aligns very hard with one parent and disaligns, for want of a better term, very hard with the other parent. What other signs are you looking out for with parental alienation? So it's not just the parent, it's that family as well. So we could get, for example, we'll use a classic example of of living with mum and dad being estranged, but we know, I have to emphasise there's so much, there are so many mums in this position as well, but we'll just give that example for now. Um, But they won't have anything to do with dad's family. So their uncles, their aunts, their cousins, there's no contact with them at all. And then sometimes we have a name change where we'll look on TikTok or Instagram and the child has reverted uh, to the name of, well, not reverted, but changed the name to that of, for example, the mum or a step parent or something like that. So there's a complete disassociation. There are clues like that. There are other things as well, which are less well known and which are slightly more controversial which is often we see a child thrive in their environment at school. Now, those who are less experienced will say, oh, well, the child's absolutely fine, so there's no impact on them. But what we have found out through a lot of psychological studies and uh, reports is that this is the child's outlet. This is where a child can really feel safe and put their efforts into doing well. And so when we do have a child doing very well at school, we often get, well, it can't be PA. They can't be that upset. They're not that disrupted. And actually, often the reverse is true. So there are signs to look out for, which may not be apparent or may not be obvious to the, to the usual uh, bystander. So you're suggesting that that even a child who looks very, very well adapted, very well rounded, uh, living their life in a in a good way, that that can actually be masking parental alienation. It's a coping mechanism and some people cope in different ways. We have children that um, unfortunately will cope using their own methods of control, whether it's eating, drinking, drugs or whatever. And, and unfortunately, children do do turn to all those mechanisms. And then there are other areas of control, as I said, whereas they think, well, if I do this very well, then that is my safe place, such as studying. So children cope, as we know, uh, in different ways. And, and sometimes they appear to be coping, but the reality is that they are not. The term parental alienation itself mm. appears to carry quite a lot of blame. The child is alienated by the parent, mm-hmm. by definition. Is it always deliberate or can it actually be totally unconscious. Someone as uh, an alienating parent has done it without any uh, malice or intention at all. So I've got a report at the moment with me um, from a a completely different country, a psychologist report, which has said that the, uh, in that case, um, mum did it without thinking about it and was almost blameless. 
which is kind of hard. And if this were over here, I'd be challenging that psychologist to say um, that I'm slightly concerned about how somebody could be so unaware of their actions, which in itself makes me query about the insight they have into their actions in their other day, um, in their everyday activities. And so, yes, officially, one can be totally unaware of it and, and um, almost blameless. That, and I have definitely seen reports like that. My legal viewpoint is that I find that hard to accept and it's something that I would challenge uh, because it does seem unusual that somebody could be so unaware of their conduct in one particular area of life and yet be um, on the ball in all other areas. And highly functioning elsewhere. Absolutely. So parental alienation, it strikes me that it's on a spectrum and and you can have um, mild alienation all the way through to extreme. So if someone's listening to this now and they think that their child is is in the early stages of alienation, what can they do as a parent? Because I'm guessing that if there is alienation happening, it's not going to be that easy to sit down with the uh, ex-partner and say, look, I've got a sense that that this is going wrong. And if we carry on like this, the, the, the impact psychologically could be massive. What can the parent who thinks they're being alienated do because it must feel a little bit like a juggernaut coming at you uh, at 50 miles an it's hour and, and you can't stop it. No, it's absolutely a hit. When your child rejects you, it's probably one of the worst things to deal with. And it is also a kind of bereavement. Children um, are with their parents and when they're not with their parents, that adult feels loss. And it is something which is almost difficult, almost impossible, sorry, to, to understand uh, because one moment your child is with you and the next they're not. And you're removed from their lives. You're removed from their school concerts. You don't know what you've done wrong. You'll be told you should know what you've done wrong. And it's almost in a Kafkaesque world where one doesn't understand how you've got into this position. Um, My advice is as early as you can, um, if you feel that talking with the other parent is not going to get you anywhere, have a go anyway. You never know. Don't throw this, um, what's the expression, the bathwater out with a baby. <laughs> Don't just totally reject it. Try it. But at the same time... With or time, without using the terminology. <laughs> yes, without. So, so you're not going to go in and say, I think that our child is being alienated. No, you go in and you say, how can we work together to make sure that this works best for a little uh, Tom, Dick and Harry. That's how you would do it. Um, and there's no apportioning of blame. If you turn around, if you look at basic psychology, if I turn around and say, you've done this, your immediate instinct, no, I haven't, and put your barriers up into defence. So one has to be a bit clever and intelligent about how you approach these conversations. Portioning blame is not going to get you anywhere. Uh, but another really important part is actually investing time with this child because your child may need that time just with you, not with your new girlfriend, boyfriend, sister-in-law, cousins. Job, whatever it may be. Exactly. Just with you. And actually quite a lot of parents don't do that in a normal relationship, normal, whatever normal is. When in you're a married regular on a day-to-day basis, yeah. No, and children do need that one-to-one time. And a lot of us are um, unaware of it um, and their time goes so quickly. So my best advice is to actually invest in your child as much as you can if you've still got that contact and ensure that child is listened to. So whilst there is still a forum for them to speak, make sure you can be there for them and echo back to them that you are listening rather than just dismissing their concerns. So they may have concerns. Daddy, I don't like it when you um, shout at other motorists. Okay, I've had this before. So rather than going, no, I don't, no, I don't. (laughs) Rather than going, no, I don't, no, I don't. I bet your mother's told you that. The response would be, do you know, actually, I can see that and um, and I do get a bit frustrated sometimes and I'm sorry, but I'm actually going to make the effort not to because I can see it upsets you. That's just one 
silly examples literally just come into my head as we're speaking. Often it's not that easy uh, to fix, but it's about listening to your child and making sure that they know they're being listened to. And another thing I'd say is this, some of us are not born parents, some of us are. And some of us don't know how to deal with children. And as they get older, I mean, they're all quite complicated. We're all complicated. We've got our own personalities, our own foibles. And sometimes it doesn't harm to get some expert help. You can approach somebody, you can approach an independent social worker, a a psychotherapist, a counsellor and say, can you help me? These are the concerns. Can you help me to respond? There's no shame in it. I've seen instances uh, in close friends where, for whatever reason, when a a marriage broke up, one of the children was struggling with the relationship with one of the parents. And actually, what I what I saw there, in in one example in particular, comes to mind, where both parents want that children to have a relationship with both parents, there is remedy. And and I'm thinking of one example where um, they came together. They 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 asked the child to, well, they offered the child to go and see a psychotherapist. The parents said, "We're doing this together," and the child was able to work through why they were struggling with one parent in particular and the child now has a very good relationship with both parents that's the ideal world isn't it the ideal world is a united front so um if the child goes out and has mum and dad at a concert sitting next to each other and both applauding and taking photos afterwards or if mum and dad can do it even if they can't bear it hold their breath and go for a cup of coffee together and then go their separate ways so the child knows that they can be in the same room as both parents that is going to be very important because when people divorce, sometimes a kid feels like they can't be in the room with mum and dad at the same time because it's just going to be too awful for them. And so those messages to a child are really, uh, they're so crucial about, they're actually dying, this has nothing to do with you. This is daddy and me, me and mummy or whatever. Um, and in some ways, distancing them from it as much as possible whilst reassuring them that you both love them. And the more cues they get, comes back to my earlier point, more cues that they pick up on from both parents that it's okay, it's welcomed, then that's going to be great. So when it comes to time with contact, rather than, oh, I love you, I love you, I miss you, and we're going to be doing this and it's a shame you won't be with us, you're being, I'm, you're so lucky, you're going to go off and have go. this fantastic, off you go, I'm just going to be cleaning the house, it's going to be so boring for me, I, the message, you're not missing out on anything here, but boy, are you a lucky child. And these are the messages that need to be coming across. And the message that you're okay when that child is not there. Yeah, we call that emotional permission. And emotional permission is extremely important for a child to be given that because without it, they will struggle. Before we come on to some of the more uh, serious remedies that you can approach, I'm just thinking here in terms of how this feels to an alienated parent, uh, how brutal it must feel because you've you've kind of poodled on through your life, through your marriage uh, or your relationship, and you, you get on well with your child. You, you think you have a good relationship. When there is serious, extreme parental alienation, that just hits a wall, doesn't it? That that literally comes to an end, and, and I say overnight, but certainly very rapidly, you can find yourself with your child totally cutting you out, just not wanting to be around you, refusing to perhaps come to your house, uh, refusing to message you. In terms of the sheer brutality uh, for a parent, it, it's almost indescribable. And that leads me on to a second point, which is that it must also be quite easy for that parent to be angry towards the child and blame the child uh, and almost put responsibility on the child. And it's really important not to allow that to happen, isn't it? Absolutely. Of course it is. I I totally take that on board. But what we also have to remember is that children um, are, by their very nature, sometimes not rational. We are not rational the whole time, but as grown-ups, we are probably able to regulate that slightly more, whereas a child may not. And also with you as a safe place, they don't need to. So you can get totally irrational responses. And one has to remember that that happens in every situation or most situations, alienated or not. 
So you have to contend with that. The fact that your kid may just decide to hate you because you won't buy them a pair of trainers or because you won't drive them somewhere or other. That I, I, And it's quite, I wouldn't say easy, but I have to often reassure parents that when their child is responding in a certain way, that it's not necessarily because of PA. It simply could be because of their age. And as a wider point for this whole series, is it important not to view everything through the the prism uh, of divorce and separation? Stuff happens because it would have happened anyway. Stuff does happen. To put it politely, stuff happens. Absolutely. Um, But one of the things that's important in life is how you respond to it. So when bad situations happen or you're stressed, a lot of the outcomes will depend on your response. So if you don't feel you have mechanisms in place to deal with the stress, then my robust advice is go and get some. Go and get some advice. Go and speak to a counsellor. Help for yourself. For yourself, absolutely, in learning how to deal with these responses because sometimes children are very challenging and one can find that you'll argue with them, you're not getting anywhere, and both of you end up harumphing at each other. Um, It's really hard to parent. We all know they don't come with a book and um, and we also know each child is different. And so each child may require a different set of responses from you. And you need to learn or one needs to learn um, how to uh, perhaps diffuse a situation, um, but not always take the blame for everything. Uh, and there are a lot of techniques I think a lot of parents could benefit from. And again, this isn't legal, but this is something that I've picked up on in my practice over the 20 plus years. Um, I'm working closely with social workers, psychotherapists and so on. When you need help, go and get it. And the problem is sometimes identifying that you need that help. And having the uh, the pride to say, I, I, I am struggling. I do need to go and access some support. Yeah, I, there, I'm not sure if there is a stigma. Sometimes people say to me, um, when we're doing applications, they'll come on antidepressants. And I have to say to them, you give me somebody that's not. I have an enormously overwhelming percentage of clients who are on antidepressants. And what I say to them is this, it shows that you've got insight, that you're struggling and that you've gone to go and get some help. And no court, no court is going to hold that against you. They're going to see that you've done something about it and you are to be applauded. And it's exactly the same for counselling. So I want to get that message out there because I know that's one of the questions. And sometimes when people come to see me and they're with their best friend or their sibling, or I raise it because I think they might be too scared to raise it with me or too embarrassed to raise it with me. And so I raise it and say, it's fine. It would almost be odd not to be struggling when going through a significant uh, it would be one, ha- well, one would have to be um, emotionally distanced to such an extent. But if that were the case, then one would wonder whether you'd be bringing proceedings anyway. It's very hard not to be affected. So talking of proceedings, uh, in your experience, how do you judge that moment uh, which going to court is the only remaining option? Because it's a massive step making an application to court. It's very exposing. It's time consuming. It can be costly as well if, you, if, you, if you're uh, represented by a lawyer. Where is that moment where the situation has become alienation and you say to your clients, this is the only option you've got left? And, and why do you go to court? So two things here. One is in um, most cases, unless there's violence or risk of abduction, certain criteria um, living too far away from each other, you have to attend mediation. And this has to be uh, carried out by a MIAMS, M-I-A-M-S certified mediator. And if a mediation doesn't um, progress or it doesn't work out, the mediator will sign a specific form which will accompany the application. So in the first instance, mediation, and I've always said to clients the same thing, 
if you can sort it out amongst yourselves, so much the better. And we'll talk about mediation later on in this series. Very important. However, and here's the big however, time is not on your side. And if this has been a position where you have tried and there's no other forum for addressing the issues, such as you are cut off from the child, the resident parent won't speak to you, and there's no other way of addressing this, then often the only option is to go to court. If there is still an avenue for discussion, then use it. But if it has been closed down, my advice often is to issue. I don't think I've ever seen any situations get better by themselves. Is part of the equation to factor in as well if there are other children? So imagine you've got two children in the family. The first child is showing serious signs of alienation. Is part of your work in saying, well, actually, if we don't intervene with professionals at this point, you may be facing the same matter with your second or your third child, even if right now everything looks fine. Absolutely. And this is is some advice I've given this afternoon on a a particular case uh, with exactly the same situation where one child is going, the other isn't, but the one that is going is already under huge pressure not to go. And so this is something which I see time and time again with siblings is it's not always both. And this is another thing where people say, well, it can't be alienation because, you know, Fred is going, but Wilma's not. Well, that's not right. It's just that one child may be resisting it for a little bit longer. There's only so uh, much a child can take as regards pressure um, and in the end, that child won't go. So it is extremely, extremely common when there's more than one child that it's going to be a common theme, even if one is coming. It there's is a likely, modelling. There is modelling. And yes, and it's very hard for that child to carry on saying, I want to see mum or I want to see dad when there's no actual, dis- they're being discouraged from going. So we take a whole lot of factors into the round. And by the end of the day, it is the client's decision as to whether they issue proceedings or not. I will advise them. And if there is no obvious remedy to get things better, then it may well be that you have to issue. The Splitting Headache podcast is brought to you by Valamus Law, a modern and exceptional family law firm. For more information, go to www.valamuslaw.com or call 03333 Surely one of the big concerns is that where parental alienation is apparently present, you can kind of assume that there's hostility and conflict in in that separation as well. And the fear must be that by going to court and by making an application, you're actually going to make matters a lot worse. Well, I I get this again a lot. And then my question is, well, how can it be worse? If at the moment there's no contact, one wonders how much worse it can get. And if there's nothing in place to make it better, then... I'd say, what have you got to lose? I, we don't do this lightly. There's not only the financial implication, there's the emotional implication. When someone goes to court, it's pretty much all they can think about. Their case becomes all-consuming. Uh, just before a hearing, they're of, often very anxious. And um, whilst for me, I can just roll up to court and do an application because that's my day job, I never underestimate the impact on somebody of having to go through this. You're living and breathing it. And it's in some ways, it's a nightmare, which makes me um, always very aware of the fact that before I'm advising about issuing proceedings, I also advise about the emotional impact this is going to have. But sometimes there is no other option. And if the other option is to wait and see, more likely not, that's not going to happen. So what can the court actually do? Because from the outside, if you've got a situation where you've got a heavily alienated child who's heavily aligned with one parent, that's going to take a lot of unravelling. And indeed, 
in the extreme sense, and I'm sure this is rare, but removing that child from the alienating parent is going to be extraordinarily traumatic for a child who is so heavily aligned with that parent. It almost yeah. seems counterintuitive. Yeah. So, so what can a court do? Anyone listening to this now thinking, I have reached the end of the road. I've tried everything. I've tried to talk. We've, we've mediated. Um, I've tried to listen to my children. I've tried everything. What can the court actually do to help? First of all, a court can investigate what's going on. And one of the concerns that I get a lot is once we've got an initial report, both parents are as bad as each other. They're not communicating. The parents need to communicate, which is often very oversimplified. So I will always advise my clients to make sure that, first of all, they are measured because in any event, that's how you should behave. Uh, But there shouldn't be any um, inflammatory communication. It doesn't help the situation. And if you do feel very upset, then you just go into another room and yell and then come back. But you don't you don't talk to them about it. So that's the first thing is keeping yourself under control. Nonetheless, we still do get that. It is a oversimplified, excuse me, oversimplified approach, which is neither of you can speak to each other. Well, the court says this this is a, a disaster, it's a nightmare, high conflict. It's a high conflict case. Both of you need to go and sort yourselves out. Uh, and it is a simplified view. And often one then has to be on the back foot where you're having to say, but what else can I do? So when clients go and speak to the social worker, to CAFCAS, often I will remind them to say, um, and let me be very clear, we can't coach, we're not allowed to do anything like that, but there are certain things that they're going to be reminded of. And one is the criteria that CAFCAS look at, which is Section 13 of the Children Act 1989, which we can talk about later, but also about the communication because I see it so often. So it doesn't hurt to seek advice from CAFCAS and say, albeit they're not your therapist, but to say, I'm not sure what else I can do. Um, I've suggested this parenting app, there's a wizard parenting app, which is great. Um, uh, and um, I thought we could communicate by emails. I've set up a specialised email. Um, What else do you recommend I can do? This is not a case where I don't want to communicate. I very much want to, but this is why I've had to issue proceedings. And sometimes I feel that it's very important for a client to emphasise that to Kafkas. Sometimes Kafkas will still come back and say, you two just need to talk um, and attend something called a SPIP, a separated um, parenting programme, which is... um, run by CAFCAS and it is re- the referral is from CAFCAS rather and it doesn't harm to attend a SPIP. So what you're suggesting is, is an element of self-awareness and, and to say to CAFCAS, look, I acknowledge that our relationship is difficult. This has been a difficult marriage, perhaps a difficult relationship, a difficult divorce. But you're looking to then say beyond that, that doesn't explain what's happening with, with my child. I think the point to emphasise always is that you want to co-parent and but it needs both of you. And if you're in a situation where your whole time with Kafkas is being negative about the other parent, then of course Kafkas are going to take the view that this isn't about the children at all, is it? This is about your relationship and you can't move on. So you have to remember to focus on the children. So in terms of what the court can actually do, in the very first instance, is the mere fact of going to court, having professionals involved, is that sometimes enough to, probably a bad choice of phrase, but shake the tree a bit and, and, and shake up the, the, the situation? The so, straighten up and fly right is the yeah, approach that so, I use. So, so, so the, sometimes, sometimes if a parent feels they're very much in control and then they get a solicitor's letter, sometimes it will um, concentrate their minds. Often it's not enough. And then going to court is a double-edged sword because almost, almost inevitably we will get a response which is full of allegations as well. And then the water is muddied, but the father or mother's done this, she's done that. 
I nearly always in every case get an allegation that one of the parents is mentally not stable. It is very, very common. And I have to assure clients that that's going to come up at some and point. And allegations of abuse. Oh, allegations of abuse, not so common. But the, the, uh, the mental instability is one that features quite frequently along with gaslighting. There are term- there's terminology that seems to come round in cycles and that's one at the moment. And uh, someone may well have concerns about somebody's mental health. Absolutely. And I'm not in any way um, stating that's not important. But I would also add that it's an allegation which is commonly brought. And one also has to be aware of the following, that if you've got skeletons in your cupboard and you've done something, they will come out and your best thing to do is fall on your sword and accept them if you have an offence in the past. Absolutely. Let's just say you've been um, in rehab and you've, you've, you were a cocaine addict. Um, you can't undo what you've done. But what you will be saying is, yeah, I did it. I was a naughty boy. I was a naughty girl. And I went into rehab. I've been clean for 10 years. I still attend anonymous meetings and so on and so forth. It's having insight into how you are behaving and um, how you are going to behave. You mentioned the Children Act. What happens when this really goes further down the line? So Kafkas have been involved. What can and what does the court do to try and remedy this for the child? So I'm talking about Kafkas being involved in preparing a report. Unfortunately, that is not always the case. Sometimes the court will um, decide, because it doesn't always go before a district judge. There are allocation guidelines and sometimes magistrates or legal advisors will get hold of the case. And on some occasions, they will simply say, we'll just do statements. Let's go for a final hearing. I have a case at the moment. I won't say in which court it is, um, where they haven't, the parties haven't been to court. The application was made. Directions were made in their absence. And the directions were, and in this case, the mother has been uh, twice um, on the um, end of a non-molestation order. Uh, While the father has, the mother's brought them. And there's also been um, police involvement. So this isn't a clean cut case. and uh, But in any event, in that case, the legal advisors have said, right, statements, no more than three sides, uh, but you need to address each other's issues. And um, but final hearing, uh, but no forum for cross-examination. It's to be on submissions only. So where are the children in that? So I mean, this is from a legal advisor. So I have um, written to the court and said, well, I'm not quite concerned about this right to a fair trial here. Um, so there are issues. In, in where you think, well, that's it. They're going to be, um, they're going to have somebody look at them. Sometimes, no. Sometimes the children aren't spoken to at all, um, which is fine. Uh, but sometimes matters are dealt with in a very perfunctory manner. So, so what's the point of going well, to Well, I mean, that's a million dollar question, is it? It really depends on where you're given, which allocation, if you get married. And there are some great magistrates. Let me be very, very clear about that. Really robust and sensible magistrates. It is the luck of the draw, though. Uh, who you go between uh, before, sorry, and what, what directions. So directions is a posh way of saying a timetable, what is ordered. So you may get um, a, um allocation exercise where it's all done on the papers and you're told to file statements and go to a final hearing. You may get one where there's a report, but just on wishes and feelings, which was we would then say is not enough um, because we need to look at why the parents um, are reporting as they are. And sometimes these decisions are made in the absence of the parties. Now, the parties do have the right to write to the court and say we don't agree with those directions. But in my experience, that's never happened. We've had a response. Never. So I I also have to prepare clients for the fact that going to court is not always the answer. You may not get this ideal situation where the children are listened to. 
and there's a good and solid rapport and then the court takes the next steps. You are, I wouldn't say lucky, but there is a great deal of inconsistency as to how uh, matters are dealt with. And one of the things is important, I must emphasise this, is with the allocation guidelines, the less extreme cases are given to magistrates. There are criteria. So if there's severe emotional harm, physical abuse, then it will go to a district judge. There are allocation guidelines. They don't just do it willy-nilly. I fear this is a little bit disheartening for someone listening who who feels that their child has been severely alienated mm. because uh, I've asked a couple of times now, you know, what can be done? And what's clear is that this is quite a wide spectrum, quite a difficult concept and that there is no one size fits all yeah. solution. Uh, you're not here able to say, well, yeah, you'll go to court and the court will then press that button exactly. and that will sort it out. This takes some unravelling, doesn't it? It's so different to finances because I, I have an equal bag of, of money and children and finances, we have three hearings. We have your first appointment, your FDR, where you have your without prejudice negotiations and you go on to your final hearing. You know exactly what's going to happen. We have almost standard directions we know what's going on. Children, no. As I said, it depends on the allocation, whether you get before a district judge or a magistrate. It depends what directions are made, whether there's a report. If there is a report, um, it could also be done by the local authority if there's local authority involvement. And then one of the problems there is that often, uh, and in my experience, unfortunately, because of fundings of the local authority, you could have a junior social worker doing a report who's never come across parental alienation at all. Then that person goes off sick and then there's somebody else coming in. And so there's inconsistency. And with magistrates, you don't have the same bench each time because obviously they only volunteer for certain periods of time. So there's no continuity. Whereas with a district judge, there is. Now, the response from the court would be, well, it's, if it's simple, the magistrates can deal with it. If you're just arguing about a weekend being Friday to Saturday or Friday to Monday, of course they can deal with that. But unfortunately, a few cases are slipping through to the magistrates, which actually do need to be dealt with at a high level. So can the court view parental alienation as, as a form of abuse? Yeah. And if it can, does that then mean that it will get other professional organisations involved? You mentioned local authority, social workers, um, perhaps um, So you're running ahead of yourself because the court will not make a finding of abuse until they fact find. Right. Where allegations are put and um, the parties are cross-examined and they set out their allegations in a what's called a Scott schedule and supported by a statement. Up until that point, it's simply one parent alleging it. Yeah. And so, and a court can't and possibly so, make that because, decision. Because you can't be in a position where a court just listens to one parent. Yeah, absolutely. It's got to be the right approach, hasn't it? So we're talking about abuse, um, but uh, that has to be something which a court makes a finding on. Uh, and that is something which does not happen quickly. So you're asking me about the path and I'm very aware that I'm giving you a circuitous answer yeah. because there are so many routes. If you could, in the old days, we could just go in, get a CAFCAS report within 16 weeks with recommendations, parties then file statements in response to that report and then have a hearing. Now I am finding the last hearing in one of my cases was December. It was supposed to come back after July and it's now being relisted in September. So it's nine months and they had gone off at that point for a period of time from a hearing the year before, which had taken a year, a year to relist because of unavailability, judicial unavailability, CAFCAS unavailability. So my point is this, is that delay is something which we're having to deal with. Um, it's nobody's fault. There's no funding and there aren't the resources in place for a very overwhelmed system. But the problem is that if you're bringing an application to court, you have to be aware of the fact that things will not happen speedily. 
from what you're saying, it's quite hard to pin down a specific timeline. People are going to say to you, Joanna, you know, when will this be done by? When will mm. my child be back in my house? You can't do that, can you? There are so many aspects that we have to look at. But when making an application, you would also forward your proposals as to how you think this should be dealt with, such as, for example, a report and then statements and then come back or a report and then come back and then you decide where you're going from there. Because And you could specifically say that we would ask the social worker to look at elements of entrenchment, enmeshment and their recommendations from that. Court would then come back. Being so entwined with the other person, as, as, as I was saying before, it's this interlinking where they're almost indistinguishable. So uh, we could ask a court specifically to direct the author of the Section 7 report, the person that does that report, um, to address those issues, then come back and then you think about what you're going to do. And a court at that stage may say, OK, what do you want to do just before you get to that hearing? Once you've got that report, you may make an application for a psychologist to intervene. I think at this point it's important to find a no to vote because I suspect someone listening to this, they've come to this perhaps because they, they feel their child has been alienated. And, and up to now, there's not a lot of reassurance, and you're very realistic, but there's not a lot of reassurance that it can get better. Now, in my reading around parental alienation, preparing to talk to you, what's clear is that it's a long game, isn't it? And, and, and you're not going to resolve this overnight. But if you do hang in there, hold the line, keep your boundaries that you referred to at the very beginning, children do evolve they do grow up they they are different at 14 to 12 or 9 to 6 is that where the reassurance can be found that, that that there is hope there is a way through and these situations do i mean as you said they don't always remedy by themselves but there is remedy it may not be how you imagined it would be at the start but there is a future yeah and i think it's as you say, I was realistic, but also I wouldn't be doing this if there weren't success stories. And that's part of the reason why I do carry on, because we do get success stories. And ultimately, those children are in a much, much better place having a relationship with both. It does take time. It does take money. It does take resources. But sometimes, sometimes we get there. And when we do, that's fantastic. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes people need to learn how to walk away. But even if you walk away, that's not always the end of it. Um, I know somebody who um, set up an Instagram account that was open so that her children could come and view what she was doing. And actually, they did slowly come back that way. So and the other thing I want to say is this, is that these things rarely happen overnight. Therefore, you can't expect to undo them overnight. There will be time. But if you get the right resources in place to address it, then often there are very positive results. There's an excellent book called uh, Surviving Parental Alienation, A Journey of Hope and Healing. It's written by Dr. Amy Baker. And in it, there are a number of accounts from people who've been through parental alienation. And the, the one defining thread of all these parents is that they hung in there. So even in the absolute extreme sense where they had children who were on the other side of the world and, and they were never in touch with them, they still wrote to them. They still messaged them. They still said, do you know what? I'm still here. Yes. And in all of those stories, that was the defining thread. Yes. That they never went away. Is that what you've seen in your experience that actually as parents, hard as it is, tough as it is, grueling and emotionally devastating as it is, keep writing, if only so that further down the line, you can say, I did write. I did send you cards. I was there. Yes. Um, unless, of course, you're blocked. But if you're not blocked, yes, I always say to my clients, send them a picture of, you know, of a funny dog or something that made you giggle or, you know, if there's a something that reminds you of them. 
Don't put pressure on them. Don't put that I miss you when am I going to see you because this is going to be interpreted as emotional pressure. Keep it light and fluffy. And while that door is open, even if they're read and not responded to, then they know that you're thinking about them and a child does always need to know that. Because ultimately, I guess alienation is around a child feeling they have to choose. And if by always being there if by always being present you're actually removing that because you're saying look you'd have to choose because i'm not going anywhere you you don't have a choice in whether i'm hanging around being your mum being your mum or being your dad you're taking that pressure off them even if it may take a year five years 10 years 20 years for for, for that to, to shift yeah and sometimes people do come back sometimes when they've had their own children they will come back and realize that what they grew up with may not be the whole picture and um there have been there have been some lovely success stories it's not always through court there are examples where that can happen um, but just keeping that line of communication open is vital and uh, the other thing i say is this is if they don't want to speak to you but will speak to a grandparent or a cousin or an auntie rather than have that grandparent say your parent misses you just let them have that line open so they know that there's a way back and lastly, sorry, it's really important, is they know there will be no recriminations. They don't, sometimes we get a child actually, they know what they've done or how they've behaved and they know that it's not terribly nice and they don't want to be rejected again. And so one of the messages to get across is if you're subtly by just sending them lots of funnies or whatever is I'm not cross with you and you don't even need to say it yeah Uh, it leads me to a a final thought as well in all of this is it important for the the parent the 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 parent who feels that uh, she or he has been alienated to perhaps just reassess how they imagined parenting would look let me explain what I mean by that When you're in a divorce or a separation, particularly with young children, you can be led to think that parenting is just about when the children are young. You've got the blinkers on, you know, this is the moment where I'm going to be a parent. Now, if I'm at any barometers to go by and I'm 49, um, I don't think you ever stop being the child of your parents. I think both of my parents would would, would attest to that. And I'm sure your children would, would, would say the same for you. So is it about reframing how you view being a parent and that it's not, I mean, obviously, you will lose time and you won't get that time back. But your time may be at a different point. Your time may be when the children are in their 20s. You will have a different role as a parent. And perhaps it's about assessing that, do you know what? If I can get to a point of having a two-hour supper with my child once every two months, that still has value and it's better than nothing. And it may even be better than extended contact that doesn't go very well. Is it about a reframing, if only for that alienated parent, to stay sane. I don't know if reframing is quite the expression I would use. It's about um, being aware that as a child gets older, their needs will change and your responses to that need to adapt. And so what a child may want from you when they are 12 is going to be different at 19 and again at 21. And that is going to be the same whether a child is alienated or not. But it goes back to your earlier message of just letting them know that you're there for them. And inexorably, you are their parent, come what may. You are their mum, you are their dad. Unconditional. Well, we were going to do 15, 20 minutes on this and it's uh, it's been significantly longer and, and in many ways we've, we've barely touched the surface. It, it is such a massive topic and one which, if my reading's anything to go by, is becoming ever more prevalent. I'm sure there are loads of societal studies as to why that may or may not be the case, but it is a really important matter. And I think what you've done today in a very measured way is explained what to look out for Um at what point you feel you actually have an issue beyond the normal ebb and flow of divorce and the normal ebb and flow of, of parental and child relationships? And 
to begin to look at what you can do in terms of applying to court and all the limitations that the system has by definition of, as you mentioned, funding and all the challenges that the system faces. But there is a moment when you do need to involve the system and that can be because of serious concerns about the child and perhaps concerns about the, the, the siblings following on uh, and finding themselves perhaps alienated in the same way. Yeah, so one thing I'd say about when you are making an application to court is very, very, very carefully consider your pleadings. Very carefully consider how you put your evidence in on your application. So on a C100 or a C1A we are alleging harm, carefully consider your wording and how you put the situation because that in itself can be very inflammatory and one has to be very mindful also of some of the key words that a court might be looking out for, which to them might flag up that there are some issues that need um, further investigation. So my advice is even if you're doing this yourself, you might want to get some um, assistance in the initial application. That's going to form part of your key evidence going along. Coming up next on the uh, Splitting Headache podcast, we'll be talking about when will I see my children? The the big topic of contact. How do you arrange contact? What is normal? What is not normal? How do you resolve problems? This is your, your daily bread and butter, Joanna. I'm sure this is at the core of, of divorce and separation. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, however you're listening to us, whether it's uh, Spotify, um, Apple Podcasts, Acast. Uh, click follow or subscribe. Uh, that means you'll get notified of when the next episode comes out. Do leave us a review as well. It might inspire us to, uh, to do some more. That would be uh, particularly appreciated. And if you are listening to this podcast, bear in mind that we've also done a video version of it. So if you'd like to see what we look like, <laughs> Joe, they're not looking at you right now. If you'd like to see what we do look like, um, just uh, search out the Splitting Headache podcast on YouTube and on Spotify as well. And you can watch a, a video version of this. Uh, Joe, just remind us where we can find you in your day job. I am at Valamus Law. And one last thing, the one thing I say every day, be kind. It's going to make a big difference. It's a nice point to finish on. Be kind to yourself and, and those around you, particularly to your children. Episode two coming up shortly. As I say, don't forget to subscribe and follow. And for more information on this podcast and for Joanna's work, head to www.valamuslaw.com. Joanna, we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.